Welcome to episode 105 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording over Skype in two separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Yes, it is. How are you feeling, Brittany? Lonely. <laughs> yeah. But in a good way. I feel like I've done a lot of self-reflection. I've done so many face masks on my skin. Because, like, when you do them, it pulls stuff out, so you get all these pimples, but it's good because they go away at some point. So, I just have, like, nothing, you know what I mean? Like, there's no reason for me to, like, look presentable. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm just, like, covered in pimples. I don't think I've, like, washed my hair in a while. It's pretty gross. You're in, like, a cocoon phase. I am. (laughs) How are you doing over there on the other part of town? I'm doing good. The last time we recorded, I... And James and Hannah were not on any kind of like work from home schedule, which is why we were like, fuck it. Let's just record the podcast in person. But at this point, I'm like officially sort of sequestered in quarantine in my house. Good. I'm I'm like the same way where a lot of people are like, oh, like you could come over and have dinner, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, if you don't live in my household, which like no one does except for me, like that's it. Yeah. People don't understand quite what social distancing means. (laughs) But yeah, I'm glad we could do this. You know, we are blessed with the internet and technology and check us out. Yeah, I'm hoping uh, everything goes well. I do a couple of these around November and December, so I've had a little bit of practice. But, you know, anytime there's like extra technology involved, I kind of get worried because I'm not very good at computers as like a sport, you know? Well, me either. I had to share the screen with you a few seconds ago so you could show me where a button was. (laughs) And you bought some new equipment for this. Yes, I got... um a gamer headset and like the brand name of it is like onikuma and it's this like japanese demon's face on the box (laughs) it's uh, who am i it's awesome (laughs) so who knows what uh internet ghosts were summoning with this new gamer uh headset equipment you you purchased oh my god it's probably like coming through the microphone into like my throat and my soul if you don't mind me saying so it sounds like you're quarantined a very small space because i've been in that apartment before small have you been using that like uh, alone time with your pets to watch movies? Have you been finding a lot of brain space <laughs> available for that? Because like, I know it's like really hard to focus that long on like a movie right now. You know, it really is. And I was like, you know what? This is a moment for me to like catch up on all these movies. And, and I did catch up on some, but like I got pulled into the Tiger King extravaganza. You and the rest of the world. Me and the rest of the world. And I will say that like, I had like a slight infatuation with him when he ran for president back in 2016. I'm like, this guy's crazy. And then I listened to last podcast on the left, one of their side stories episodes, they talked about Joe Exotic and his arrest for his murder for hire plot. And then it was just like silence for almost like a year. And then this documentary (laughs) came out and it's like resurfaced and like everyone is Joe Exotic crazy. So I'm loving the vibes right now. I can't get like maybe five posts in a row on any social media app right now without seeing Tiger King content. And I don't even watch the show. It's a lot. It's good. I like the way they put the documentary together. And like, so I find him strangely attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the mullet? It's the mullet and like his whole like weird polygamist (laughs) marriage with those two guys. It's just beautiful. all great. Something it's just something just like really beautiful about that and 
yeah, um, I'm a Joe Exotic fan. <laughs> so other than watching that, I have like been watching some movies that have been kind of up on my queue that I've been trying to get through. So I'm good to talk about those, right? <laughs> yeah, go for it. That's why we're here, right? <laughs> yeah, that is. And to distract ourselves from the uh, four walls we've been staring at uh, over the last solid week. Oh, my God. Right. This color blue. It's like my apartment's painted in this like happy sky blue. And I'm like, it just looks like vomit right now (laughs) (laughs) you're sick of it i'm just so sick of it so the first movie that i have been like dying to watch for years that i'm i've utilized the social distancing period to see is the 1951 american classic a place in the sun so a place in the sun is based on this book which was also a play called an american tragedy And I want to say that in 2005, that it was also made into an opera (laughs) at the Lincoln Center in New York City, (laughs) which is wild. That's cool. But it's a story that is actually inspired by the murder of Grace Brown. So in the early 1900s, Grace Brown was a young woman who was drowned in a lake by her boyfriend. And her boyfriend, um, during the trials, would just basically say stuff like, oh, she just like jumped in not taking blame for it, but he was found guilty and electrocuted at some point. I think like a couple years after they found her body. Um, So that's kind of like what this movie, A Place in the Sun, is sort of based off of. So George, who is played by Montgomery Clift, you know, Montgomery Clift has like that very classic American 19, you know, 50s man face. (laughs) I don't know how, (laughs) how else I could describe it. I don't know, just like having Montgomery Cliff play this character, I think, brought this movie to a whole new level. Does he have like a square jaw and a deep yeah, voice? Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Just very, <laughs> this is a jawline. Well, he's like this kind of blue collar guy and he works for his uncle and his uncle's like filthy rich, owns this company and George wants to like rise up in that company and his goal in life is just to become rich and successful. So while he's working in like the lower ranks at his uncle's company, he starts dating Alice, who um, is played by Shelley Winters, which we all love her, right? Yes. Auntie Rue! She like works with him at the factory and she's, you know, on his level, you know, she's kind of poor, very working class and she falls in love with him. And he's, of course, not as in love with her as she is with him, which is very sad, but um he starts to kind of like rise up in the ranks of this company. And as he rises up, he becomes more of a part of his uncle's life and this high society that his uncle's a part of. And he meets this other woman while he's like at all these fancy soirees and all this shit. And he meets Angela played by Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, wow. Right. Right. And he falls in love with her. So he's kind of like balancing relationships between like this woman that met him when he had nothing And this other woman who just knows him as being successful, you know, so he's kind of like balancing these two personas and these two relationships. Well, Alice gets pregnant and she wants George to marry her, but he's not interested in being with her now that he's like, you know, with the rich and the fabulous. And there's a lot of implications that she attempts to get an abortion, although the words are never said, but she ends up not getting it. And she is so set on marrying him and having her help him raise this child. 
And he constantly, like, lies to her, leaving her at home alone. And she kind of lives in an apartment like mine. <laughs> so I kind of sympathized <laughs> with her. <laughs> you know, she has, like, a little table that she pulls out to eat her meals on the edge of her bed. And I'm like, oh, geez. Here we go. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only uh, thing missing is the Murphy bed and, like, pulling the bed out of the wall oh, on the spring. <laughs> I-, I thought about it. I think that's my next step. It'll buy some space. It would. And I could just, like, pull it up and then actually have, like, a table. It's in my mind. I have a Pinterest board about it and everything. (laughs) So she eventually realizes what he's doing, where she looks at like a local paper. And on the front of that paper is a picture of him boating with Elizabeth Taylor and some other people on like Labor Day weekend. And she's like, oh, wow, he's lying to me. And she gets on a train and goes to find him at this like fancy lake where he's having this Labor Day extravaganza with, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and the rich people. And he brings her out to a lake with the intent of killing her, of drowning her. And what happens is like, he kind of is having this internal struggle where he's like, you know, can I actually kill this woman who's pregnant with my child? How can I do this? And as he's thinking about it, they're having a really upsetting conversation. And she like gets up in the boat and loses her balance and falls overboard and dies. And he doesn't try to really save her. So it's kind of like he did murder her, even though he didn't physically push her. It's like he wanted to kill her and he didn't like do anything to save her. It's dark. (laughs) It's very dark, (laughs) Um, which I was surprised. You know, I I didn't really know that much of like how the the film was going to go. I just kind of knew like a a brief overview of kind of what it was about. Um, So it was really surprising about how like how dark it was. And I liked it a lot. Really liked it. Is it it a 50s picture? Yeah. uh, 1951. It's got kind of like a a suddenly last summer or like talented Mr. Ripley or I don't know. There's like a sordid thriller. Yes vibe that that's playing off of that sounds really cool it's really cool i think you would like it too and i love um shelly winters just always looks the same like whether she's like 70 or like 17 you know what i mean like she always yeah (laughs) there's so like she looks old when she's young and young when she's old (laughs) um so yeah i watched i watched that movie so that was a a huge check from um my my list my my little queued up list The other movie I saw that I really want to talk about, I have been dying to watch this movie for so long, and it finally came up on Hulu, and I thought there was, like, some weird, like, oh my god, is, like, something out there wanting me to watch this, that it provided it on Hulu for me, because prior to it being available on Hulu, I couldn't find it anywhere other than, like, having to actually pay for it, but it's Lady in a Cage. Oh, I've never heard of that one. Oh, Brandon. It stars Olivia de Havilland. Another psycho bitty uh, classic. <laughs> you, she's like got some psycho bittiness going on in this movie where she um, lives in this home with her son. So she's kind of like this widowed, wealthy white woman. And she lives in this really nice house full of like fancy antiques with her son. And she's like overbearing and he leaves to go on a business trip, but he's actually leaving because he can't handle her anymore and wants to like kill himself. (laughs) And she had a hip surgery. So she has a private elevator that takes her from like the bottom floor to the second floor where her bedroom is. (laughs) And she's, her son leaves to go on his quote unquote business trip that he'll be back from soon. 
and she gets in her elevator and then the electrical box outside gets hit by a ladder or something like that from like a construction worker's truck (laughs) and there's a short and she gets stuck in her elevator wow (laughs) and then she slowly starts to kind of like lose her mind and then a homeless alcoholic randomly finds her house in broad daylight breaks in finds her booze and then sees like wow this woman's trapped in her elevator and there's all kinds of antiques and fun stuff so he grabs a couple of things and goes to his like prostitute friend to tell her hey i found a bunch of booze and a bunch of stuff in this house and this lady's trapped in her elevator we could probably sell the shit sell it and make some money so while all this is going on they're taking well he's taking some of the things that he found in the house to this like local dealer and there are these three like you know, juvenile delinquents who are also there selling shit they stole and they kind of overhear what they're talking about. So they become interested in going to the house as well. So the alcoholic and his prostitute friend go back to the house to like finish stealing all the shit that's in there. And while they're in the house, they're, they're being very like secretive about it. Like she doesn't really see them while she's in her private elevator and then the three juvenile delinquents come in and just like terrorize everybody (laughs) and it gets like stupid violent and one of the um the teens is a young james con and i believe this was like the first role he was ever in (laughs) wow and then the violence level gets really high then you know like there's a murder more crazy shit happens. They start taunting her because they know she's trapped in this like cage. But it's super funny in this like in that psycho bitty way where she's trying to get help and she like throws her shoe and I don't know if that's what gets the phone off the hook for her to like ask for help, but like her phone's ringing and she either like throws a shoe to like get the phone off the hook or she makes some kind of contraption with shit she found in the elevator to get it off the hook and then she starts screaming like help help i'm trapped in a private home elevator <laughs> 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 it's so good though so it's just it's horrific because she's in this suburban home right by a busy road in daylight and like no one is hearing her calls for help or her alarm, or her screams, and there's even a point where she makes it outside, and, like, everyone's got, you know, their beach balls in their convertibles, zooming down the road to go hang out, and they don't even see her, like, crawling, (laughs) screaming for help. So there's all kinds of cool, spooky stuff like that that happens, but it's so good. Sounds really slimy. It's so slimy. It's disgusting, and stupid, and, and wonderful. I would love for us to do like an elevator horror episode yes because um there's a couple of them there's one called the lift right it from 1983 and it's like yeah. swedish or something i was literally just reading about that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so i haven't seen that so but i really think i really want you to watch this and i really want us to talk about it in debt so that could be an idea that'd be fantastic so those are like the two big highlights that i've been watching and the you know the two films that I think are going to have the biggest impact on me. (laughs) Um, So what have you been watching, Brandon? Well, this unexpected quarantine has coincided with Lent. 
I'm not Ooh. Catholic anymore, but um, I do like the idea of like giving up something for Mardi Gras. Do you do Lent? Like, you know, Mardi Gras, you like indulge. Yeah. And then there's that 40 day period between then and, you know, Easter, which pretty much for me is the gay Easter parade in the quarter is like the, you know, the ceremonial end of that. It's all gone. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's happening or not. Probably not at this point. So what I gave up for this Lenten season was purchasing physical media. Oh, it's a bad habit of mine to just sort of do that without actually watching everything I own. That's a good one. I give up stuff too, even though I'm not a practicing Catholic. Like I still enjoy the the challenge, I guess. It just feels right after like indulging so right. hard on everything during Mardi Gras to like sort of like pull back a little bit. I gave up fast food because um, I always like I'm good about it, but God, sometimes after I drink a lot, I'm like God Taco Bell, <laughs> and I know it's gonna kill me. So. <laughs> that helps. I mean, both of ours sound like a little bit of a cheat right now because it's harder to get to like the places I would normally buy cheap DVDs. And I'm sure it's harder for you to get to a Taco Bell right now. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'm winning. <laughs> uh, so what I've been doing is just sort of going through uh, my DVDs that I have not watched since I purchased them. I'm watching a lot of like movies that way. Yeah. One I, I want to talk about, I actually watched on YouTube, but it's it's just part of like how I've been going through this. It's like a list of movies I've had on the docket. And I'm watching the shortest ones first. Oh. That's how small my attention span is. That's a smart idea. It's called The Exotic Ones. It's from 1968. It's also known as The Monster and the Stripper is its other title. Ooh. It's set in New Orleans in a strip club <laughs> on Bourbon Street in the late 60s. And basically, these like mobsters run a Bourbon Street strip club and they want to drum up business in their joint. So they go to the swamps outside of New Orleans and kidnap this like sasquatch creature that lives out in the swamps like the rugaru they never say rugaru in the movie it's just called the creature or something like that or the hairy <laughs> one or something like it's it's actually insane that they never say rugaru interesting but it is like a, a like a bigfoot style character and basically it's this like 8 foot tall hairy man uh, who looks a little bit like a caveman but not that strikingly like you would kind of expect like a roger corman like rubber monster the way they like drum up the hype to him right he's played by a uh rockabilly musician called sleepy labouf who also goes to sleepy labeef which i find the funniest <laughs> fucking stage name i've ever heard in my life <laughs> that's the guy who plays him they kidnap him and bring him back to the club and if you've ever seen any like monster movies since king kong you know that they put him on stage, he's tame for a minute, and then the crowd excites him and he freaks out and kills people and like runs wild. But what I really like about this movie is that it delays that for so long. Like the first hour of it is just strip routines on the stage at this nightclub, and it's just really fun. You know, it's like this like swinging 60s horror movie where like they're using the monster angle to sort of get people in the door. And once you're in there, they just show you a bunch of like burlesque routines where like there's a lady who can bend over backwards and also Ooh. has these like tassels that she sets on fire. So like she's like swinging <laughs> flaming titty tassels. <laughs> and there's these other routines that are just not even remotely sexy at all. Like they're kind of dressed like ducks and just for waddling around the stage and Dalmatians. So it's just a really fun like relic from a different time, and I just had a total blast with it. Also, like I watched a lot of movies recently that were set in New York in the seventies that sort of documented what like porno theaters and strip clubs looked like there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we don't get as much of that on Bourbon Street, even though it was even more 
sort of out in the open than it is now. And this one has a lot of exterior shots of just like light up neon signs with these fake titties on them, like advertising that strip clubs are inside. So it's an interesting document of like the seedier end of the quarter, which is still run by mobsters in certain circles. And like just has a lot of fun with the idea that they can just throw strippers on there without really bothering with the plot. And it actually is entertaining the whole time. It reminded me a lot of this Russ Meyer movie called Mondo Topless, which was a quote unquote documentary about strip clubs around the world. And it mm-hmm. literally just is like a parade of different strippers doing their thing. As you were t- describing this movie, I just completely thought of like Russ Meyer movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. That idea of like the Mondo movie will come up again later when we talk about mm-hmm. it, like, you know, main slate of films today. So I it just will. wanted to bring this up because of that. Uh, another one was a thrift store purchase from my DVD bin of like, I call it my shame pile, like movies I've purchased but haven't watched. It was called To Die For from 1995. Have you ever seen that with Nicole Kidman? Is that the one where she's like on the cover and it's like bluish? Yeah, that's exactly why I bought it is that she's like, <laughs> it's from that like erotic thriller era, like Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction and stuff. Mid to late 90s. Yeah. I love like all that. And she has this blunt bob like wig on the uh, cover. She's sort of like revealing her like chest underneath. And it's a very like evocative yes. like, mid 90s erotic thriller cover. Uh, have you ever actually seen the movie? No, <laughs> I don't think so. What's it called again? To Die For. To Die very For. generic title. Maybe f- I'm going to let you describe it and start talking about it. And maybe it'll jog some memories. It's a Gus Van Sant film. Uh, it's set. In this like small town, I think in New Hampshire, and I'm going to spoil what happens because the movie spoils it itself in the first like 30 seconds. But this, you know, local weather girl for the small town cable station cons these local dirtbag metalhead teens into murdering (laughs) her husband for her. She is convinced that she will be famous on television, but her husband wants her to kind of stay home and become a housewife. And she's like, I can't have that. So she, you know, seduces these like small group of metalhead douchebag nerds from this like high school and convinces them to kill her husband holy shit this sounds great yeah i think you would really like it it's shot in this like mockumentary style that reminded me a lot of drop dead gorgeous but the content of it is from that like post pulp fiction era where like timelines are all scrambled and everything's really subjective and it's based on tabloids like the actual thing that happened in real life was very similar. This woman, her name was Pamela Smart. She worked at like a local high school and um, seduced these kids and t- and convinced them to kill her husband. Uh, she wasn't a weather girl in that case, but they sort of riff on that and um, make it about fame. Like she's convinced that she will be a famous television personality at some point. And, the only roadblock is like the small minds that get in her way. And, you know, she's mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman. So she's like fucking dropped it, gorgeous bombshell right. character. So like she's already kind of outgrown the small town that she's in. But what happens in the movie and what I think it's really interesting is that when she kills her husband to get him out of the way, then the paparazzi sort of swarm around her and start shooting her like like a famous tabloid celebrity like criminal. Like, this is from the era of, like, Tanya Harding and Lorena Bobbitt and, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial. This is, like, a very iconic era of tabloid celebrity criminals. And the movie builds its whole aesthetic around, like, the supermarket aisle headlines from that era. Oh, I miss those, like, National Enquirer days. I loved all that. 
And what I really love about this is the movie doesn't really admonish her for it that much. Like, the movie isn't interested in the twists in her story because they kind of assume that this is like when Pamela Smart was like still in the news a lot. So like Mm -hmm. they assume you know the story and how it's going to play out. But it just really digs into her character and like what that sort of narcissistic fame looks like. It reminded me a lot of like John Waters, uh, his like anti-heroines, a lot of divine characters or like Melanie Griffith in um, Cecil B. Demented. Yeah. That version of fame where like you kill someone or you like flagrantly commit crimes and you enjoy the attention that comes through like the news media covering your crimes, which I feel like is just a very John Waters uh, aesthetic, I think. (laughs) I think you would like it a lot. There's a lot of like great 90s casting in it. A lot of like sitcom actors from the era on top of like these like actual famous movie stars. So it just felt very of its time and reminded me specifically of like walking past newspaper racks in the grocery store aisle of like, you know, famous criminals, Patsy Ramsey and uh, I don't know, like a very specific era. I feel like JonBenet Ramsey was on like every tabloid headline like a million years after she died and she still is, I think. Oh, wow. It felt like a Lifetime movie, but with like movie stars, which is like a great aesthetic. (laughs) I love that. Well, uh, we are going to be talking about sort of Mondo-ish movies today, and we're going to be talking about John Waters as well, which is kind of why I've singled those two items out. Today, we were talking about bootleg drag, just like dirt cheap, unofficial, independently made DIY drag movies. It's going to be an adventure. Uh, I don't think any of these movies are anywhere near perfect or like great on their face, but maybe their imperfections will give us something to talk about. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) And to be honest, the way that we do quote unquote drag once a year with the crew divine stuff, I feel like is about on this level of like professionalism. So this is the uh, the bed we've made and now we have to lie in it. The sloppy drag bed. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. It's not a boy or a girl. This is a bagot. It's a dyke. No, it's a hippie. A communist. Perhaps it's a drag queen or a watch rag queen probably a speed freak or a pothead or a muffin queen look at her it's just a whore or maybe a gold digger but she's a hustler yeah or some sort of intellectual probably a rimmer and now it's time for our movie of the minute this is where we bounce back and forth recommending films to each other and i made Brittany watch a movie from 1969 called mondo trasho it is the first feature film from John Waters, who I would say, I, I don't mind speaking for both of us here, is like our favorite director. Is that correct? Yeah, 100%. When we first met, we kind of bonded over uh, John Waters and Trailer Park Boys. That's, I think, the first yes. conversation we ever had. <laughs> it wasn't work-related. This is a movie that I kind of have been waiting to watch because it is unavailable in any sort of official capacity. If you pay attention to like Waters's presence on physical media it's been like sort of ramping up lately like i got to see multiple maniacs in the theater and then buy it on blu-ray a few years ago and other films are getting that criterion collection treatment right now where they're cleaning up his earliest works so i kind of was holding out this hope like okay one day mondo trash show will be like nice and cleaned up and spiffy and i'll i'll view it in these like ideal conditions nope um and it's not gonna happen it never will happen (laughs) So I wanted to break down and just be like, okay, it'll never be ideal. We watched this like transfer from a VHS tape that's on archive.org. And 
it's shitty. It, it's kind of sloppy. The image quality is bad. The sound quality is even worse. But what I kind of assumed was that the movie had these like unlicensed music drops, and that's right. what was keeping it out. What I thought was holding it back was that the movie had maybe like five or ten songs in it that they couldn't use. And I was thinking, like, why don't they just switch it out? When they uh, released Daria or Beavis and Butthead on DVD, they just swapped out the music licensing they couldn't clear uh, with like generic pop songs. I'm like, oh, why doesn't he just do that? <laughs> Watching the movie, I get it now. It's the entire movie. <laughs> The entire movie is just completely soundtracked wall to wall. Right. It's and it's I wanna say it's all he handpicked these like from his personal like vinyl collection too. I mean, you could kind of get that vibe. Were you surprised that the like Bayou song played in there? I don't know what that song's called, but it was like Crawfish Pie Me Oh My Oh. <laughs> and then instead of saying like Bayou, they're like Bayo <laughs> Down on the Bayo. Bayo. I did not expect to hear that song. It was so... I couldn't stop laughing uh, when I heard it. But it's very, like... I know at first I was like, oh, I bet you each song has, like, a purpose with the moment it's placed. And I'm like, I just really think he was just having a lot of fun with making this wild soundtrack of all his, like, favorite type songs. But, yeah, like, the like the movie itself is just, like, a like listening to, like, a compilation tape of just music there's maybe collectively like three minutes of dialogue maybe in this movie and um yeah like i guess after seeing that i was like okay that would probably be like stupid expensive to get like all the licensing done to release this and i think the more i kind of dug into it i read that it would be over a million dollars and like john waters himself was like yeah that's never gonna happen (laughs) Criterion would never make that money back. No. I wish like some kind of like rich philanderer would like, you know, just sort of bankroll it just so we could see it. See, if I become rich one day, that's like the first thing I'm going to do. I'll be like, here you go. And let's be honest, this movie's not particularly great either, unfortunately. Like, <laughs> it feels like a dry run for multiple maniacs. And as a fan of his, it's fascinating to see these like germs of ideas that later got like repurposed for like better movies Mm -hmm. but you know if if i had just seen this and never seen another movie from him i don't know if i would be you know obsessed i found like a lot of like fun humor in it but the what i didn't care for the most i think where a lot of the scenes just went on for like way too long and as we'll we'll start talking about it but there's like a foot fetish scene where mary vivian pierce is in the park and this you know foot pervert has been seeking her out and starts like, you know, messing with her feet. And it, I feel like it lasted for like 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just so long and I'm like, it could have been cut in half and that would have been fine. And like something else could have come in. And to be honest, that is a problem with every single movie we're going to talk about today. Yeah. These are all like DIY hand pasted together, like art objects from people who don't know what they're doing. And they all have very strong aesthetics, but they also all have a very terrible handle on pacing. Mm-hmm. So each movie feels like they last forever, even though they're relatively short. Right. So like you said earlier, this is kind of like a mixtape from the 60s. Like I mm-hmm. feel like mixtape culture, those like home audio cassettes came around in the 80s where you like make a mixtape for your crush and like tell them how you love them. Uh, You sort of tell a story about your crush, like through an audio cassette that comes like maybe two decades later than this. (laughs) So I didn't get like a computer, like our family didn't get one till like I was in my teens and we didn't get like anything with the CD burner 
until I was like probably 17. <laughs> so what I would do is I would take blank cassette tapes that I would buy at uh, K&B and put it on B97 and like wait for something really cool to come on. Oh, hell yeah. Me too. Yeah. Record it. And then like, I was like, oh, what if I do a remix? So I did like, I'm going to do half my humps and then I'm going <laughs> to throw in some weird stuff on Magic 101.9, which is like the soft rock station. So there's like a cassette yeah. out there where I have like my humps and it stops and then it plays like um, it's all coming back to me from Celine Dion. Like it's <laughs> weird. It's so weird. And I thought I was like being super artsy and cool. <laughs> and honestly, this feels like that too. Like it's like very choppy and abrupt and abrasive. And yeah, it was before people started doing that, you know, as a sort of regular routine. And he's kind of playing with it from like an art film perspective. I found it to be very fun. Like I, I had a good time with that part of it. The only other movie I could really compare it to, like a feature length film, is Girl Talk. That movie, Girl Walk All Day. Oh, yeah. That? that was one of our first movie of the months. Yeah, it's like just a person walking around these like this one city, in this case, Baltimore for John Waters, uh, <laughs> you know, to this constant audio soundtrack and the lyrics and the music sort of tell the story more than any of the dialogue, which is very little of. And I I love how like a lot of it is the, these, you know, 50s and 60s songs. And then there's like follow the yellow brick road <laughs> from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> like, it's so funny. <laughs> it's super playful. Yeah. And none of the songs really play out at length. It's like literally like 10 songs a minute. Mm -hmm. So it's like almost like Burroughs, like cut up style. Yeah. Like to clear all the music for this would just be absolutely insane. I'm going to try to do a quick plot recap. It's not much of a plot. <laughs> so Marion Vivian Pierce is this like sort of hip weirdo as she is in real life. Right. She gets on a public bus and is reading Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon to herself. Uh, she goes to the park to continue reading and she encounters a shrimper, which uh, you <laughs> called out earlier as a foot fetishist. <laughs> He sort of lures her into the bushes and gives her a shrimp job. He uh, sucks off her toes. <laughs> I like. I didn't know what that was until I watched this movie, and I'm like, shrimper? And I'm like, you know, my dad's like a troller. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> that is so wild. But I love, like, before the pervert gets to her, she's, like, feeding, like, raw ground meat to roaches. <laughs> Sick. Yeah, <laughs> like, instead of ducks. Instead of feeding birds. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I didn't understand uh, the opening credits said, you know, such and such as the shrimper. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And as soon as he started sucking her toes, I was like, yeah, that's, God, that's the shrimper. I'm, I just, I'm so educated right now. <laughs> <laughs> so he's sucking her toes and she has this like orgasmic fantasy. Yes. That's uh, Cinderella based. Like her evil stepsisters are beating her up. She has this like S&M fantasy version of Cinderella play out in her head. Uh, and somehow through this interaction, she comes to an orgasm. The Cinderella like fantasy was one of my favorite scenes in this movie. Agreed. Yeah. Like w there's this part where, well, she comes downstairs in her like tattered gown <laughs> and, the, you know, the prince puts the, the shoe on her and it fits and then she turns into a princess and it's so funny, but it's that whole fantasy scene is so phenomenal. It reminded me of the like religious epiphany in uh, multiple maniacs when she, uh, mm -hmm. divine's getting like the anal rosary beads. It's yes. the same kind of like impulse there. 
Um, so she has this orgasm in the park and she stumbles back out into the road. Like she's so dazed from uh, the, the pleasure of the, the shrimp job that she got uh, that she doesn't notice that divine in her first role, like as divine uh, is sort of recklessly driving down the road <laughs> in this like bright red convertible Cadillac. The movie's in black and white, but it still reads as like a candy red Cadillac somehow on the screen. Mm-hmm. And she exactly. hits Mary and Vivian Pierce with her car. While she's picking up <laughs> this hitchhiker who she fantasizes being totally naked. <laughs> so the reason I thought about this movie recently is because um, I just reread John Waters' first book, the shock treatment book. Have oh, you read that one? Yes. It's been a long time, though, but I have it. Yeah, I hadn't read it since high school either, but uh, Cece gave me yeah. a copy recently and I reread the whole thing. And that hitchhiker sequence actually got them all arrested and ended up being like really good publicity for this movie. Yes. Yes, because didn't they do it on like a college campus? Yeah, it was like the John Hopkins like John hospital Hopkins. college campus. Yes. Oh, I remember <laughs> reading about that. <laughs> yeah, they all like went to trial and like ended up being like really good publicity because by the time they got to court, there wasn't really any evidence that any of them were naked. And oh god, when they <laughs> tried to show his movies in the courtroom to like prove that he was a pornographer. You know, it ended up being these like sort of early grimy, artsy fartsy New York <laughs> films. Uh, and no one was impressed by like how pornographic they were, so it just sort of like dissipated. Ended up just like being good, like mono trasho promotion. Awesome. So Divine is distracted by this naked man that she's envisioning in the road, and she hits Mary and Vivian Pierce with her car. And the rest of the movie is just this sort of like series of misadventures as Divine like scoops up this woman she just hit and sort of drags her around town. In a panic, trying to make things right. She takes her to a laundromat and tries to get her, like, non-bloody clothes. After she steals clothes from a thrift store to give to her. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, here's the thing. So in a lot of, you know, these early John Waters movies with Divine, Divine is, like, this fabulous monster. But in this movie... It's like she has a lot of empathy. Like, you know, the fact that she took this person (laughs) and is trying to, like, kind of help her out, even though she hit her with the car. Like, I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like Divine's heart is so big in Mondo Trasho. Yeah, in Pink Flamingos, she would have just hit her and, like, laughed to herself and, like, looked at (laughs) the body in the rear view. Yeah, exactly. And then backed up and hit her again. And in Female Trouble, she would have done the same thing. Probably in Polyester, she would have been different. (laughs) (laughs) as Francine but you know what I mean like I thought that was so interesting yeah it's a different version of Divine she she takes her to a doctor to get her like legs fixed (laughs) god the doctor's played by David Lockery and that scene ends up being like a sort of ode to the silent film Freaks where he like saws off her feet and replaces them with chicken feet oh god were they duck feet I was like trying to zoom in as much as I could to like kind of see it it looked like they were almost webbed that makes sense. I just read them as bird feet, and I think well, some kind of because bird, it yeah. reads as such a like reference to freaks that I just jumped a chicken. Well, and then they had that chicken scene in the beginning. Like the movie starts right. with the executioner like chopping chickens' heads off in a ditch. Well, that's how it begins and ends, right? Like it begins on a farm, oh. and then they leave the uh, hospital where she gets the operation, and then yeah. they go back to a farm where they have this like sort of final showdown where like. Mary and Vivian Pierce drowns Divine in like pig shit and mud. And then she clicks her like new bird feet together and like transports to a couple different locations. And then the movie just sort of ends. (laughs) She gets these magical Baltimore chicken feet. So yeah, I guess, yeah, that makes sense that they would be chicken feet. And the last place I think we see her teleport to is just like this 
sort of like regular shopping strip where these two uppity uh, rich women are looking at her and just sort of like asking, what is she? She's some kind of hippie. Is she an art freak? Is she a drag queen? <laughs> is she a dyke? Is she a rimmer? That scene was the funniest to me. I couldn't stop laughing. And it, that's one where it went on for a very, very, very long time. But I'm glad it did because <laughs> it was so funny. It was kind of like a Tim and Eric joke, right? Where like it, it's funny and then it stops being funny. And then they push it so far that it gets funny again and then funnier yes. and funnier. Like it's just <laughs> over and over and over again. Uh-huh. Uh, asking yeah. all these questions. <laughs> And that is like almost all of the dialogue in the film that is not divine. Divine gets the other pieces of dialogue and it comes in two different parts. It comes mm-hmm. with her, I think, becoming the kind of divine you were expecting at the doctor's office. These paparazzi come in and start swarming around her and like asking her questions about this hit and run accident they had heard about. And she gets very like swept up by the attention and like, becomes obsessed with that fame that the uh, crime affords her. Kind of like what I was talking about earlier with that Nicole Kidman movie. Like she loves the like paparazzi attention from this murder. And like, I think that's when she becomes divine and like the fullest form. The other bit of dialogue are these like religious epiphanies divine has where she sees the divine mother. Yes. Mary mother of God just sort of appears out of nowhere. And she starts praying to her like, Mary, you know how it is. It's not easy being divine. Help me be more divine and help me like repent. And she gets blessed with like a wheelchair. <laughs> yes. To roll Mary Vivian Pierce around in. <laughs> and also I was just sort of like rejuvenated to see that in a way because, you know, recently when we went out for Mardi Gras crew divine this year, Cece did this like beautiful, you know, divine mother, like yes. Mary outfit. And we didn't realize like how on the nose that was like and how perfect it was because I we thought of seen this movie yet. the same thing where I was like, wow, this <laughs> if that in itself is divine, right? <laughs> that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish we had seen it beforehand, but it almost felt like a miracle to, you know, experience it just a month later. That's what we do at Crew Divine. We're making miracles. Very trashy miracles. I did kind of like this movie as a mixtape, like what the teenage speed freak John Waters was listening to in his home record collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought it was interesting as a, you know, snapshot of both what John Waters would later do in other films and as of like what early divine drag looked like. Like she's not even blocking her eyebrows in this movie. Like she's just doing sort of like exaggerated makeup on her normal face. It's before she got that really huge arch from the pink flamingos era that's become so iconic yes pre-arch but um still those the orgasmic facial expressions (laughs) Mm -hmm. that are so delightful like here's the root of it you know the source yeah i feel like she is the one thing that is like fully formed here even though her Mm -hmm. look's not quite right the the attitude and the personality yeah there's a scene i think where she's shoplifting to the girl can't help it yeah from the jane mansfield movie and she's taking uh she takes the shoes off of like a drunk woman (laughs) and steals her shoes (laughs) that is like pure divine right like that's Uh already like ready to go that's our girl i thought that was interesting just as a fan like to see these like early primordial versions of things i would come to love later especially in early movies like multiple maniacs and pink flamingos it was cool to see like an earlier snapshot of this I don't know that I would necessarily call this a good movie. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I wouldn't think this is a movie. I would go out and be like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to watch that again tomorrow. But it's I love it for what it is. And like 
you know, having seen all these, all the other John Waters films and then coming back to this one, I think like I had more of an appreciation of it. Another thing that I wanted to talk about in this movie that I really did appreciate was um, the topless Mink Stole dance that lasted forever. Mink Stole going nuts in the insane asylum doing that dance reminded me so much of her character that would be to come in desperate living interesting i was thinking of taffy that's sort of hyperactive like jittery i could see that i kept seeing you know mortville (laughs) 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 like her mortville life i don't know but yeah i would suggest like not have it like you said before like obviously like this should be the if somebody wants to get into john waters's films like don't seek this out first but (laughs) watch all of it first and then come back to it and it's pretty cool yeah i think it feels like an art film in that it doesn't really have a concept and just sort of follows its freak flag (laughs) as it flutters (laughs) in the wind you know the movie just sort of feels like it's wandering around the city looking for stunts to do Uh, and i think even as early as multiple maniacs like they came up with a better frame for that because that one has Mm -hmm. like the uh cavalcade of perversions or whatever where it's like a uh, circus act thing where it's like okay now it's time for the incredible bike seat liquor uh or you know (laughs) two homosexuals kissing in the flesh uh where that's sort of like (laughs) presented as like a here's a stunt here's another stunt so like here the movie like sort of just stumbles around looking for that kind of like weird energy and i think maybe even more so it would have been fun to watch this in that time with big crowds. Oh yeah. I watched this alone at home and it was fun and all, but I feel like with a, you know, large group of people drinking and like, you know, shouting over it, it feels like it's built for that because even the soundtrack, you can kind of talk over it and still get the idea of what they're like putting forth on the screen. Cause there's not a yeah. lot of dialogue to interrupt. You know what I mean? It's a party movie. <laughs> For sure. It would be great to do some sort of like dance part. You know what I mean? Like have this movie playing with all the songs and just, you know. We could all do a topless jitterbug like. <laughs> yeah. Like we, could, we could bust through a drum like she kind of does. <laughs> <laughs> that scene also reminded me of the uh, piano scene in the original Me- Reefer Madness movie. I was wondering if they're kind of re- referencing that or not. So yeah, this whole movie has that kind of deranged, sloppy quality to it. And I really appreciated it as like an art object and like right. a historical object, but maybe not so much like front to end. I was entertained the whole time. There were definitely some parts where I was like, okay, it's time to get on with it. Yeah, I, I'm okay with it not being released. <laughs> Me too. On DVD. Even though like I think it is important um, and I did appreciate it a lot, but I'm I'm cool with it kind of being how it is. <laughs> of glamour in a universe of mediocrity. An orbiting paradise plunged into chaos by a diabolical jewel heist. Tottering on its delicate orbit, the glittering resort is swept by a cosmic crime wave. Arson, theft, physical torture, tremors, gas fires, nightmares. A distress signal goes out across the cosmos. So we both picked a couple of other dirt cheap bootleg drag films to pair with Mondo Trasho. The one I made you watch was from 1991. It has been distributed by Troma. 
uh, with an awful introduction from Lloyd Kaufman at the start of the movie that I would recommend everyone skip right over. <laughs> the movie started filming in 1984. What? No, it started filming in 1982, I think. It took a year and a half to film and then seven years of post-production editing to fix into like a regular feature film. So it started okay. filming in like the mid 80s and then came out in the early 90s. Well, this makes sense because I saw the movie's date in 1991 and I'm like, it feels way older than like a 90s film. So that makes sense. I don't even know if I named the movie yet. It's called Vegas in Space from <laughs> 1991. But yeah, Vegas in Space was made by a bunch of drag queens in San Francisco in the mid 80s. And what it was was just a bunch of like, unprofessional like art school kind of weirdos uh and also just barroom performers and sex workers Mm -hmm. making movies in an apartment and in a series of apartments the main performer is this drag queen known as doris fish she started in australia and then moved to san francisco and met a bunch of these like california weirdos and decided you know we should make a movie together uh, and this movie ended up kind of becoming like her dream. Like she built all the sets. Most of it was filmed in her apartment and she made all the miniatures for it. And part of oh, the reason it took so, so long good. to film is because she insisted on doing everyone's hair and makeup herself to give the film a consistent look. So like instead of having people come in already ready to go and like filming as many scenes as they could they would come in she would do their drag makeup which you know takes hours and then they'd start (laughs) filming the guy who did the music is in the film for one scene he was supposed to be one of the drag performers but after like a few days of it taking five hours to film like 20 seconds of like footage he was like (laughs) fuck this i'm out please write me out of the script and they uh they make him disappear literally on screen like in the first like two minutes of the film (laughs) So, yeah, the movie is sort of scraped together. People can't afford to properly edit together any of the footage. They don't have the skills. It's literally the same apartment for every scene. Like, they'll tear down the set and just remake the set in that room over and over again. Because it took so long, Doris Fish actually never saw the film completed. I think she died of, like, AIDS complications, like, Mm -hmm. within a year of it premiering at Sundance. There's this really great read if you just google um, making of vegas in space there's a whole blog the director put up where he like details like how this movie was filmed to the point where like he talks about performers in it like performing these like sex acts uh in exchange for meth and for production money like they'd get paid for prostitution and then use that meth and production funds to like complete the film sort of this like labor of love across like this like group of drag queens in san francisco wow i didn't know about everything taking place mainly in one apartment the makeup that sounds insane like all that you just said that's so intense well there's a reason you don't do that like (laughs) because it takes you eight years uh, for your movie to come out (laughs) well it kind of but it also kind of shows like how passionate she must have been about it you know to commit to doing all that or also had an issue with control (laughs) something yeah and honestly like it might have helped the movie a little bit promotion wise because by by the time it premiered at Sundance in the early 90s it was after Todd Haynes and like the new queer cinema like movement had come through Mm, yeah so there's like a lot of hunger for that kind of queer content at the time I will say that I was so surprised at how 
like the drag makeup in this movie is like on par with like modern drag makeup today and like the looks i agree too right like because a lot of drag early like in the 80s and 90s was very like pageanty and not as imaginative as like drag is today and i just like saw this and i'm like wow this looks like something that would be on drag race you know like now and i think especially you see that with doris fish's co-star miss x who uh is in two different roles she Mm -hmm. looks like a violet tchotchke type like she is just fascinating looking um Mm -hmm. in this sort of like space age dominatrix gear in the film yeah, she would fit on a modern season of Drag Race, no question. I actually found her to be, like, the most fascinating, like, on-screen presence out of anyone in the movie. Oh, totally. This, like, evil drag queen from space. Like, ugh. Yes. <laughs> Everything. Well, if you can't tell by the title, Vegas in Space, uh, this movie's sort of riffing on 1950s B-movies, like, space adventure stories. In this particular story, this, like, sort of Flash Gordon riff, this group of male space adventurers, like admirals in some sort of, like, Star Trek-style, like, space academy, they have to go to this planet that is only accessible to women, and they take these, like, pink glitter pills that change their gender and change their sex uh, so that they can pass as women on this planet, and they transition from, you know burly men with mustaches to beautiful drag queens what's really funny about that is that two of the men are played by cis men two of them are played by women and the movie just sort of doesn't really dwell on that for too long like they're all drag queens which i feel like is very modern too like we have Mm -hmm. been to a lot of drag shows where there are cis women sort of mixed in with the regular sort of drag queen aesthetic so that felt like very up-to-date modern at the same time so they take these pills they transform into like beautiful glamorous women They go to the planet and they get swept up in this sort of like missing jewels plot. It's a very like MacGuffin style plot where they're like posing as Vegas lounge act performers that are going to like put on a show for this like planet of women. But really they're there investigating these missing jewels that like the empress of the planet uh, wants back at all costs. And the whole plot is just total bullshit. (laughs) It's really not even worth worrying about. The real, like, main part of the movie is just how it looks. Everyone's costumes and makeuping is just this beautiful work of, like, DIY art. And the sets themselves have sort of, like, a Pee Wee's Playhouse vibe. They remind me a lot of the B-52s in a way, too. Mm -hmm. This movie looks the way that a B-52 song sounds. Especially the part where um, the post-beauty pill look for Debbie and I can't think of the other girl's name, but she gets this huge, huge, like, Lady Bunny-style hairpiece. And there's, like, this go-go dance club scene where, you know, because they're, like, the Vegas showgirls from Earth. Like, that whole part felt like a B-52s music video. I actually have that written down in my notes. Okay, beautiful. <laughs> Do you know the song Planet Claire from them? It sounds no. like this movie's like an adaptation of that song. Ooh. It's about a planet of women. Beautiful. And yeah, there's like some sort of stops and starts. I would say the same as Mondo Trasho. Like the aesthetic of it is very engaging and like mm-hmm. totally in my wheelhouse. Just things I love to see on the screen. But every time I watch this, I'm like both in love with it and bored by it at the same time. Like <laughs> the plot comes to this like screeching halt once they're on the planet And I sort of like every time I watch it, no matter what state I'm in, I sort of like doze off a little bit and then come like snap back into it. I'm like, oh, yeah, look at that beautiful outfit. And then I just kind of like 
fade away from the screen and then snap back to attention. Right. I admire it on a um, aesthetic level and on like a, uh, you know, amateur art level. I liked the moments of like that drag queen humor that comes through. Like whenever um, the girl who's stealing her mother comes into like their little portal and she's this like very, has this very like New York City accent. That was hilarious to me. You know, the funny banter between the queens was funny, but I, I wish there was more of it. That's the part that felt like old school drag queen to me. Mm-hmm. Cece and I recently went to San Francisco for the first time uh, last year. And we went to this bar that was like within walking distance of the hotel we were staying at called Aunt Charlie's. <laughs> and they had this like drag act that they did every like Friday night, like as a routine. And it was just funny to watch these, like, queens who were kind of bored with the act they were doing. And it's, like, caked on makeup. Like, spackle. Yeah, it's yeah. just, like, spackled on. And sort of commiserating <laughs> with each other and sort of, like, half-joking about how lame the act was. And there were these regulars who were just sort of, like, lip-syncing along with the songs because they hear them every single weekend. <laughs> That's an old style of pageant drag that I feel like is very pre-drag race and very, like inherent to how i grew up with drag in new orleans that felt very traditional and i could feel that in this movie in a way Mm -hmm. so the movie's like sort of old-fashioned in that way even if the looks are sort of like futuristic and modern right what what did you think about vegas and space as a movie as a movie i couldn't follow along with the plot very well like it was too (laughs) much it's like the jewels and then this type of people and then this type of people and the this is what they do with this type of people. And here's this part of our planet. And it's part of this system. Like I got lost in all that. And I just honestly was watching it for the looks and some funny moments and the funny, like old school banter, like I was saying. Um, But I was really surprised at how beautiful it was. Like I thought it was going to be super shitty and cheesy and it kind of was, but I was really impressed with the sets and you know, the drag looks and I liked it all. It feels like if we tried to make a movie, this is what <laughs> what would happen, you know? Yes. <laughs> like we'd have some sort of like charming, like hand built sets and these like sort of fun costumes. And then everything else would just be a fucking a mess. Horrible I, plot. I that's why I love it. Yeah. It kind of made me feel like I get like maybe Doris Fish was like in the same mindset as, um, what's his face M. Night Shyamalan when he did Lady in the Water <laughs> like we got a scrunt and this is how the scrunt gets killed right to get across, like all this insane like this made up world that's just it, it got too big <laughs> and too much to keep up with um but I, everything else I appreciated so much in this movie um I did and, and you touched on it before but the miniatures that Doris Fish made oh my god I loved the miniatures so much, especially the one where they're like, there's um this really psychedelic scene and there's like a doll of one of the Queens. <laughs> Is that the nightmare sequence? I think so. That's my favorite part of the whole film. <laughs> oh, it was so funny, but I love it. Like they're so like they're works of art in itself. I'd love to know where all these little miniature pieces are right now. If, if someone's got them or if they're on display oh, they've somewhere. they've been destroyed, I'm sure. No, don't say that. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I would love to see them. The blimp. <laughs> the little silver blimp going over Vegas in space. All of You're it. You're kind of like looking for Pee Wee's Playhouse somewhere in mm-hmm. the like foreground. You're like, where is it? I, I can almost see it. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. I found myself like looking at that kind of stuff. Like I wasn't focused on the plot because I was looking at like, oh, that door looks really cool. I wonder how they made that. <laughs> yeah. You know, that kind totally of shit. It. <laughs> yeah. You never get lost in the story or the characters or even what anyone's saying. You're just like constantly looking around like, how did they make that? Or like that lip line is really sharp. I love that. <laughs> how did she do it? And um, that part, well, like the end part where they chop off a head and jewels come out. I'm like, why are there jewels in the floor? <laughs> Like, oh, that's the whole plot of this. They're trying to get them for some reason. I don't remember. I agree. Yeah. Who cares about those jewels? (laughs) Who gives a shit? That nightmare sequence, though, where like one of the characters is like sort of freaking out. I I guess they've been drugged or something. It's hard to follow. But like the movie was made in the mid 80s around when MTV had first like premiered like early MTV era. Oh. And it felt like a weird Mm. video art, like extension of MTV. Like it was kind of this avant-garde music video freak out sequence that probably by the time this came out in 1991 was not special, but you know, looking back at it now, it's like, wow, that lo- that looks really cool and weird. And I think early in the film too, where they have the rocket launch where they first go into space, it's filmed off of a television and you get those like weird bars that come down when you film at the wrong frame rate when you're doing that. And I feel uh, like those like video art moments were like very exciting to me. I never noticed that. I didn't really start noticing stuff like when they're all when they're men before they go to the clitoris planet. It's super boring. And I'm like, God, this is too Star Trek. And I was so scared. <laughs> I was so scared <laughs> that that was how the movie was going to go. And ugh, I was so pumped when they got to Vegas in space. <laughs> but OK, even on that, like early Star Trek sequence, there's like a character who's also played by Miss X, who's like the sister of the Empress of Police or whatever Miss X plays later in the film, who is filmed entirely on a video screen. She's like this zombie type oh, head that's floating. Yeah, I forgot about that. And even that is like a video art. That is cool. Like aesthetic. I don't know. I, I, I'm really interested in like, I guess kind of the, an extension of what I like now that like cell phone footage texture. <laughs> like I feel like early straight to video stuff has like a... Uh, specific texture to it that I find really fascinating. And this movie is like trying to be a real film on celluloid, but it also needs that sort of like cheaper video quality to like actually pull off a few of its effects. Mm -hmm. Well, I do really like just the sort of like amount of effort that went into this. I feel like it's one of the worst movies I've seen this many times. (laughs) Like I've watched it like four or five times. Yeah, for sure. Oh, amazing. Is it on Blu-ray or is it just like regular? No, it's some like trauma DVD we bought. Oh, awesome. You can actually watch it on most platforms now, though, because trauma has uploaded a bunch of their stuff to like Tubi and YouTube and that kind of thing. (laughs) I feel like the entire library of trauma movies is on YouTube. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of ad breaks, but uh, the movies aren't that good, so it doesn't really matter that you get interrupted so often. Yeah, I forgot what platform I watched this one on. It's like some it's like a not like a Tubi but worse than Tubi. <laughs> Sub Tubi. Sub Tubi and there were ad breaks every like 5 minutes and it was all like coronavirus themed. <laughs> so it was just so terrifying like it would i would watch this and then it would have like a break and it's like we can deliver cars to your door because you can't come outside <laughs> what a grim like come down from such an escapist glamorful fantasy oh it was it felt weird <laughs> this movie was shot in glamorama 
<laughs> you had to like come back to reality. <laughs> it was. Uh, I would love to watch this glamorous film in its entirety um, without the break. So I think I might invest in purchasing it because it was, it was just really nice. Like I would love having it in the background while I'm like crafting and stuff like that. Well, we were talking about uh, Mono Trasho being a good like party movie. I think this would another, be another good one that, to play in the background, like a party oh, you're right. atmosphere. Yeah, because it has like a really good like essence to it. Like I don't know, it just it was very uplifting. <laughs> yeah, I just like admire the art and the effort, even if the mm-hmm. final product isn't perfect. Right. So we traveled from the late '60s to the early '90s. The last two movies. Uh. Uh, And now we're going to the early 2000s. What did you make me watch for this episode? Oh, God. I made you watch a movie that had no effort uh, at all. (laughs) But it's uh, Killer Drag Queens on Dope with an exclamation point. So this is a very, 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 very cheap, very, very, very independent movie that came out in 2003. The director for this movie is Lazar Sarek. And what's so funny is um, this guy's filmography is exclusively Nickelodeon TV shows <laughs> for children. It's so funny. You'll look through it and it's like, oh, Ned's Declassified and all these things on Nickelodeon. And then all of a sudden, killer drag queens on dope. <laughs> so I, I really couldn't find, and you might have had better luck than me, but much information about like why this was made or what made Not this. Not really. It's like, why did this guy leave Nickelodeon behind for a little bit and make this crazy movie and then go back to more Nickelodeon stuff? It's very mysterious. Um, But this film pretty much takes place in an apartment that is super bare. There's a bead curtain and a Sherbert like lamp (laughs) and like a sofa. It's definitely like a far uh, end extreme opposite of Vegas in space where like it's the same <laughs> style of apartment, but like instead of building these like fantasy worlds, it's like some lights from Party City. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not even like Jalo lights. It's not like cross lighting, like red no. and blues. It's like it's sort of yellow Party and orange. City. Yeah. And uh, there's like bad. this sort it's of cheap, bad. funky 70s score that plays over the background. So it feels like they're going for this like throwback, like exploitation aesthetic, but I can't tell mm-hmm. exactly what they're aiming for. Like what movies are they aping? It felt like they were trying to go to that like Russ Meyer style of film and they just didn't do it very well. Yeah. None of his movies look like this though. Like, yeah, there's just like nothing quite that looks like that. <laughs> it's its own thing. <laughs> but I picked this movie because Alexis Arquette stars in it. And I've heard about it for a very long time because I do like I love Alexis Arquette and I've just never watched it. But the poster that I would see for it was her in like a nun costume and then like pointing a gun and it's like killer drag queens on dope. So that just sounds so fun. Right. And she is billed under her drag name, which is Ava Destruction. Yeah. Ava Destruction. Yeah. Love it. Alexis Arquette as Ava Destruction plays Ginger And Ginger lives with Coco. So both Ginger and Coco, they're not really drag queens. They're more transvestites, would you say? They're more trans women, right? Like, because... Yeah. Because it's like uh, Dog Day Afternoon, that Al Pacino movie, like... Yes, it's very much like that. They're committing crimes specifically to steal enough money to get a, a sex change. Yeah, exactly. So it's not as draggy 
as like I expected it to be. Um, but Ginger and Coco are contract killers and best friends. So Ginger's boyfriend is supposed to do these contract killing jobs for his uncle A, but he's getting Ginger and Coco to do it for him. And like, like you were saying, like the purpose is so they can get money to get Ginger a sex change. Well, <laughs> Coco is very funny. Um, so Coco, like as all this is happening, the only thing Coco really cares about is like her lovely Linda doll collection. Um, she has two of them. One's kind of like Ginger and one's kind of like Coco. And she plays with them and like reenacts like their life with her dolls. <laughs> It's like a Trixie Mattel's Barbie obsession. I've been watching a lot of uh lately. Good. <laughs> yes. So it's like that, but there's only two in the collection. <laughs> it's very plain. And they're like the um, the Barbies that you get at the Dollar Tree who have the like really bad plasticky bodies that are filled with air. Mm. So lovely Linda dolls. One of the contract jobs they have, there's a briefcase and in that briefcase is this very rare, lovely Linda doll that's worth like 10 grand. <laughs> so Uncle A wants the doll. And then there's a whole bunch of shit that ensues when Uncle A finds out that Bobby, who's his nephew, um, is actually getting Ginger and Coco to carry out these contracts. And I thought it was kind of boring <laughs> but there were some cool parts in this movie like I, that's the plot's kind of silly and hard to follow but it doesn't provide that much excitement to compensate for the lack of an exciting plot there were i did like the, like the lovely linda doll bits funny and eva destruction i think that she's a good actress and i found like a lot of her lines to be super funny and um there's a really good like acid trip montage where they they have a little tea party with like Barbie doll size teapots and cups and they put acid drops on the sugar cubes that go into the teacups and then there's this really funny like cool acid trip scene that's very very wild and very music video like um that I enjoyed which is very similar to the drug freak out in uh Vegas in space in, in yeah. some ways oh yeah you're right you're right so yeah, I mean, it's it's pure trash. This movie's pure trash. It's cheap. I think this might be the cheapest film I have ever watched in my life, and it feels it might be cheap. a time thing though, because like, do you think this is early shot on digital video, like early two thousands stuff? Mm -hmm. The earlier two films we watched were. Mondo Trasho from the late 60s, which was like really cheap 16 millimeter grimy stuff. And then Vegas in Space has this like mid 80s, like it's also shot on like cheap 16 millimeter with like this like sort of video art add ins. We're far enough away from those two things where they have like sort of this aesthetic that's kind of become pleasing through just being vintage. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've moved far enough away from like early 2000s, like shot on video digital bullshit yet so that it looks cool you know what i mean like maybe it never will look as cool as 60 millimeter i don't know but at this point i feel like we're not far enough away from it yet we're like we don't have any sort of nostalgic quality to it <laughs> we might appreciate it more in 20 years <laughs> maybe maybe yeah, no probably there were some scenes that i really liked that i wanted to see more of like when they were not in that horrible apartment 
like when Ginger has the nun outfit on and she's got like two throwing knives and she, you know, finds, you know, the guy they're supposed to take down and says like, you're a sinner and you must atone and then throws knives at him. That was funny and exciting. And it didn't seem like that scene cost that much. So I just wish that there were more outside stuff i just i felt so depressed being in that apartment with them for so long it looks more like a hotel room than an apartment too it's like you're either stuck in that like you said like motel six room with them or you're in like uncle a's basement which is even worse and more plain and it's very dull another big sequence outside the apartment is in a warehouse where Ava Destruction gets her revenge on the mobsters by utilizing her roller derby oh, skills. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I feel like there's a few set pieces like that are just sort of like, what does Ava Destruction love to do? She loves to dress up like a nun. She loves to uh, collect Barbie dolls. She loves to roller derby roller with her best blade. gals. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just felt fun to watch her like have fun. And I would say like maybe the movie's like biggest selling point is just the novelty of watching Alexis Arquette star in a movie. Like I'm used to seeing her in these like small roles. Yeah. Uh, I know you like really like her as the boy George. Impersonator. <laughs> yeah. In uh what movie is that? The Wedding Singer. Yeah, I'm used to seeing her in these like small bit parts. And it was just kind of like even though the movie's so cheap, it was just kind of adorable to see her star in a movie as the lead. She was the best thing about this movie and I, I just feel like I wish they would have given her more more opportunities to like be herself. You know what I mean? Like be Eva Destruction. Well, I would say even the other drag queen works just as well. Together they have this sort of like sweet, adorable friendship that the uh sort of main conflict in it, like, okay, yeah, you're saying this like mobster wants to kill them for getting in the way. That is like the like on the plot conflict, but like on a more personal level the two of them had this close friendship where they just want to like collect Barbie dolls and drop acid together <laughs> and shoot up <laughs> and yeah. And do every other drug that you could name. Cause they're on dope. <laughs> exactly. But the other conflict really is that the boyfriend who's sort of stealing for this sex change um, wants to break up their friendship. He's like, yeah, I'm right. going to transform you into the woman you want to be, but your friend has to go. Cause he doesn't get along with Coco. No, and I feel the love story really is between Ginger and Coco. And the movie's kind of bad and terrible. Uh, I agree with you there. But, like, there's kind of a sweet dynamic between the two women uh, in the forefront that, I don't know, kind of carried it for me a little bit. I like them as, like, a a shit-kicking duo, for sure. And I did like the ending of this movie. Like, I feel like it brings it back to, like, their friendship being the core. (laughs) What happens at the end? Refresh my memory. (laughs) They end up selling the lovely Linda doll and they're in bikinis in their living room in that motel type plain room and they have an inflatable pool full of sand. And then it just says, Finn. I do not remember that at all. <laughs> I might have zoned out by the time It this lasts is over. for like not even 30 seconds. But she's just like, I forgot. Like she's like, oh, Coco. Like she says something like, how's your bathing suit? And then, or something really general like that and then it just ends (laughs) wow because it shows that they you know they made out like bandits with the ten thousand dollar um lovely linda doll 
and which is a, a very cheap Barbie doll with her hair chopped off and mar- permanent marker all over her face. Um, <laughs> and they're still in the apartment, but living luxuriously. It's uh, funny. <laughs> yeah, I really don't even remember that. Like, I th- might have stopped caring by the time that happened. But um, that is very sweet. It was very sweet. It kind of gets to like the core of it, which is like their friendship, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, that is pretty cool. But I don't know. I I don't think it's a good movie. I don't want to defend it too hard. <laughs> I'm trying to find like good qualities of it. And it, I, yes, like the friendship between the two queens is great. Watching Eva Destruction do her thing is awesome. Well, yeah, like Alexis Arquette kind of had like a shitty life and didn't really get to right. like be what she wanted to be in the public eye for that long. And right. um, it was cool to see this like drag persona of hers on the screen. I feel like you never get that in any other media. No, because she's like you were saying before, she's always like a side character. So it's right. cool that she had something to be the star of. And she did it very well. I thought so. Uh, my, my one like major complaint with this movie, and I don't know how to really put this without sounding like a crass asshole, but like this feels like it should be porn. Let me be honest with this. I was so scared that it was softcore porn. <laughs> like, as I started watching it in the beginning, I'm like, this feels like a, a softcore porn movie, and I'm going to feel like shit if I recommended this <laughs> for Swamp Flicks. Well, first of all, I would have loved it more if it was porn, so you would not have, like, that would not have been a faux pas on my end. Okay. <laughs> but I was like, oh, are we going to be like a softcore porn podcast now? Like, what are you doing, Brittany? That's fine with me. <laughs> but yeah, it has all like the, the dialogue and the acting is very porn. Well, that's what I was thinking earlier when I was talking about like the like sort of cheap like party city lighting and like the funky 70s score. I'm like, yeah, my first thought was like, how is this not porn? <laughs> and then my second thought was like, this will be so much better if it was porn. <laughs> Even on, like, a porn level, the, like, main fault I have with the movie is that it constantly comes up that men are surprised that these women have dicks. And, like, that is a source of, like, humor and, like, shock. Like, oh, these men are, like, seduced by these, like, sort of female Oh, and uh, I hate that. Like, that that made me cringe at those parts. Like, the the macho guy making these rude remarks and... Getting sick to their stomach when they realize they've been attracted to someone who happens to have a dick. Right, and it's like, oh, I wanted them to see their dick get sucked by the person with a dick. (laughs) Like, that could have been the route. And you know what? If this was porn, that would be okay. Because it, like, falls under the moral compass of erotica and kink. Right. But like because it's not porn and because it's like a fictional piece, like you have it's to sort shitty. of read it as a comedy. And yeah, the comedy right. of like someone being like a trickster who's like sort of like surprising you with a penis, like it, it doesn't read very like politically well. No, no. Yeah. That's like the parts that I was like uncomfortable with where I was like, Oh, this feels very like derogatory <laughs> and ugh. But also, the lead is also a trans woman, so I, I right. can't be that much of a like a policeman on a moral level about right. like, what she was willing Which, to do. And I want to say that she did actually fully transition not that long after this movie, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's so funny how uh, it's sort of like a, a, a modern day dog day afternoon. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Maybe we could watch those two as like a double feature. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me ask you, like, why 
is Alexis Arquette like in the forefront of your mind? Like, what is your like exposure to her that makes you think of her on like a frequent basis? I don't, I've always loved her. I've just always like admired her. Like, whether it be like interviews or fashion or you know minor roles in movies, I just always smile, and there's just this joy that I always get from anything Alexis Arquette. I don't know. I just get like this like warm fuzzy hug feeling and. I like everything that she's pretty much done. There aren't that many like trans women that are like famous movie stars. So it was cool to see one of them star in a film that it felt like they had some sort of creative control over, you know? And I will say like my favorite fashion style is that like late 90s, early 2000s, like club look. And that's that's the worst. That's my favorite. Oh, sick. I love it so much. Like if. Oh, I still have like body frost, frosted lipstick. I would love to get <laughs> chunky highlights and have like space buns forever and, you know, furry crop tops. Like, I love all that stuff. And like, that was like Alexis's style too. So yeah. that's also why I love, love Paris Hilton. <laughs> like, <laughs> Alexis and like, you know, she's on the same level as like Paris Hilton to me, maybe higher. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just admire Alexis's journey and story. So I think that's why I didn't like the movie as much as I wanted to, because I, I felt like I wanted more for her. You know what I mean? Like I wanted this to be like a lot better than it was to give her like, like this is what the one film you've like starred in and had like, you know, almost like total like screen time for and you can't do it again because you don't exist anymore. So it's yeah, it's kind of like that. Isn't that kind of like the whole story of all these movies though? Like we want them all to be slightly better than they actually are. Yeah, we we watched some very cheap drag films. The cheapest of the cheap. And I think we were kind of stacking the odds against ourselves. Like Killer Drag Queens on Dope is from this like early digital video era where like no one really likes this aesthetic yet like it might age a little better later but we're, we yeah. have no nostalgia for this yet mondo trash show is from this like 60s era are you familiar with like the mondo movies as like a genre yeah it's sort of like documentary style of like traveling around the world and watching these like quote-unquote savage cultures like eat rare foods like i feel like it was going to be gross and like unsatisfactory no matter what right vegas in space was like fueled by sex work and meth you know that was never going to be as good as they wanted it to be just on the whole this was us doing what this podcast does best which is like looking for positive things to say in inherently flawed ideas right not just be like oh these are stupid silly b movies it's like no like they have there's more to it than that. I want to say in general, like I had a good experience watching these movies that I feel like are, you know, drastically flawed. Yeah. Maybe Vegas and space was my favorite just because I've seen it so many times that I've become fond of it. Uh, maybe it's Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. <laughs> Mono Trasho, I think is a good trial run for things that are done better in multiple maniacs, which was John Waters, second feature film. And, Killer Drag Queens on Dope, I don't think is particularly good, but I found it kind of adorable just to watch, you know, Alexis Arquette have fun in right. her Ava Destruction personality uh, with her, her friends. <laughs> Do you have any uh, sort of like general thoughts on this group of films as a whole? I, 
even uh, like as trashy as they were, they all had a lot of heart in them. Like you could tell that like, you know, someone cared about a, a lot of people cared about each one of these movies enough to commit to making them and acting in them and producing them and writing them and directing them. And it, it, they all kind of felt like artistic outlets, you know, like even though they weren't like coherent films, it felt like you were inside somebody's like brain a little bit. That's the best part of like DIY art is that it's coming mm-hmm. straight from one artist's vision with no other yeah. person clouding it. The uh, sort of trade off there is you don't have someone else like sort of stepping in and saying, hey, maybe you should edit this down. This bit isn't as funny as you think it is. <laughs> you know, <Right>. like. <laughs> <laughs> and all of these movies drag. You know, they're drag oh, movies, yeah. but they also drag on like a uh, drag and drag. Too. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, next episode, I don't want to pretend that I can predict the future, but uh, next episode should be me and Cece talking in quarantine about Kenneth Anger movies. Who's he? He actually came up earlier in the conversation today. He wrote Hollywood Babylon, which is like a gossip <gasps> oh. uh, book. Oh, wow. He also wrote and directed a bunch of um, short films in the 40s till the 80s, um, I believe. It was like his heyday. They're like ultra gay, artsy fartsy movies. Wow. Actually more kind of DIY art, but maybe closer to the artsy fartsy end than the, uh, the drag movies we talked about today. But you know what? I've been very bad at predicting the future lately. Maybe that won't happen in two <laughs> weeks. I have no idea what's going to happen in two weeks. But you know what? Put it out there. Hopefully that's what you'll hear on schedule. (laughs) For the notes on this episode, I'm going to include a link to more DIY art. Uh, We posted recently a couple of links to artists who did portraits of our divine looks from this year. Oh, God, yeah. Um, These are people who could use, you know, a little boost in income given how COVID-19 has put a lot of people out of work recently. Right. So if you want to click on this episode's notes and just see people who've done like hand-drawn portraits of people's drag looks from our divine outing, this recent Mardi Gras, and maybe send them some commission money to create further art in that same vein. I, I really appreciated that anyone would even look at us for more than 10 seconds, much less uh, create. Know. I was like in tears when I saw that, like, the Crew Divine commission that Hana had done. It was, like, everything. It, it looked like an 80s album cover, which we're all about, <laughs> with, like, Crew Divine. And it was done so well, where I just was so blown away by it. So please click through and yes. see that art and see, you know, our bootleg version of drag. And also, you know, maybe support the artists who have like sort of like made us live on in infamy. Exactly. And we'll see y'all in a couple weeks in whatever form this happens to come through. I hope everyone's out there being safe and take care of themselves and each other. Yes. Watch movies and don't go outside. Yeah. If you can focus for 90 (laughs) minutes on something, watch a movie. We like that. Yep. Bye, everybody. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye.